Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. On tonight's show, I've got Michael Wayne of Medallion Financial to look at a number of tech stocks he's recommended over the past year or two to see if he still likes those companies. Those companies include uh, Elmo Software, Ordinate, Megaport, and a few others. And he throws a couple of new ones that he thinks look pretty good in the tech space. Then Marcus Bogdan of Blackmore Capital, who also manages the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, will talk about a number of companies that he likes uh, following their AGMs. What are those AGMs saying about these companies and what are those companies? And then Chris Joy uh, of Coolabar Capital came out with an extraordinary call uh, over the weekend saying that house prices will fall by, wait for it, 20%. Now, I know Chris pretty well. He's a very good forecaster. I want to get to the truth of this 20% call. I have actually done a much longer interview on my podcast, but we'll take a, an excerpt from that podcast to give you an idea of why Chris thinks house prices could fall by 20% and when they will fall by that kind of number. And finally, Paul Mirren of M Square Capital will look at the reasons why he thinks growth will be strong uh, and particularly he thinks immigration is going to be very important for the Australian economy. Growth is going to be really important. That could actually restrict the reason, the reason for the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates very quickly. That is a very interesting connection, which Joy also talks about in the podcast. That's the show. Let's kick off with Michael Wayne of Medallion Financial. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me as always, Peter. Now, I wanted to go back to some of the old stocks that you've liked in the past to see if you still like them, if you've still got potential, or it's time to bail out of those stocks. So one of the first ones you introduced me to was Elmo Software, and the market's starting to be a little bit more positive towards it lately. What's your latest take on that company? Yeah, look, it's one we've liked for a number of years now, and I must admit it hasn't been the best performer in history, but we do think it's a good quality business that's worth persisting with. Um, they have been, you know, as high as $8, um, as low as $4, and they've been in that range really for, for three years now. Um, obviously, COVID was a little bit of a hiccup for, for a lot of businesses, including Elmo. It did sort of disrupt uh, their trajectory, but it's a very high quality company in the tech space. Um, essentially involved in HR software, um, helping companies with their, their rostering, their payroll, as well as a number of other different um, modules, as they call them. Um, they've recently had an update to the market, which has been well received um, and has allayed a lot of the fears that were out there regarding a pathway to cash flow positivity. Mm. So in their most recent update, they flagged a 78% increase in their cash receipts. Um, so that's a, a very good number for them. Um, but effectively, they're one of these businesses that has very low customer churn rates. Their average recurring revenue has been growing very, very quickly over the years. Um, and the thing is, as a customer comes on, they might use one or two of their modules. But over time, as they get comfortable with Elmo as a company and the different services they offer, they tend to bolt on more modules as time goes on. So for us, um, we like the metrics of a company like this. It doesn't trade on the very lofty multiples of many other tech companies. And I think the recent good news could be the impetus to push it back towards that $7, $8 mark uh, with potential upside from there. Um, it's worth noting as well, they've conducted a, a fair few acquisitions over the last couple of years. I think they're up to sort of seven or eight since they listed. The most recent acquisition um, 
has given them access to the UK market. That seems to be going very well for them as well. What we always like to see is not only that they're incorporating these new acquisitions quite well, but they continue to grow the business organically um, and they continue to do that. So a company that hasn't shot the lights out, um, but the positive news flow recently could give it the impetus to move higher. Okay, let's go to another one you, you put on to Megaport. Yeah, so Megaport, this is a much better performer than Elmo. Probably one of our better performing stocks um, that we've ever picked for clients. You know, got in there the early threes. It's now pushing twenty dollars. Mm. So it's a an interesting business involved in the cloud software as well as data centers. Um, and effectively, it allows companies to pay as they go in terms of capacity use. When they need a lot of bandwidth or a lot of internet, they can go to Megaport. Um, and when they don't need as much of that, they can then pull away from that service. So it gives businesses a lot of flexibility. Um, when it comes to cloud storage, access to different data centers, and it doesn't matter about the geographical location, um, Megaport enables them to connect all around the world. So for us, it's a very good business, had a very good update recently as well. They're now on track to reach that $100 million recurring revenue mark, which is always a key milestone that many companies look to tick off. Um, they've got a lot of good quality customers across many different industries. And you know, as a lot of people would be aware, we're using more and more data these days. And this is one of those businesses that should benefit from that increased trend going forward. I interviewed uh, uh, Brendan Slattery, who was a founder of Megaport. And the example he used is quite relevant because he said, when the Melbourne uh, Spring Carnival's on, a, comp a, a business like the VRC needs an enormous uh, website to cover all the kinds of inquiries and all the issues around that big event. And that's when they would use a company like Megaport to have that extra bandwidth, that extra ability to handle all the inquiries and, all, and whatever. And, and that's a good example, I think, of where Megaport has its potential. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, the analogy we often use, it's like a roundabout for, for different companies. They can get on and off when they want and when they need peak data, they can access that capability when they need to get off because they don't have that busyness, then it's obviously that flexibility is appealing for a lot of people because I don't, it's basically a network as a service model. I'm often hear a lot about software as a service. This is a network as a service. You don't have to pay the big annual subscription fees. You merely pay as you go. And I think that's an attraction for a lot of companies. The roundabout analogy probably implies <laughs> that you are a newlywed and eventually a child will come along the way. And you'll be <laughs> watching that child on the roundabout, as I have done in many years of my okay. life, and now with grandchildren. Let's go to another one you, you tossed at me ages ago was Ordinate. And what is and this is another company I think has a lot of potential, but what's your current thinking on Ordinate? Yeah, so it's a business that we've been in for probably two years and done fairly well off. Um, it had been doing a lot better for us until only a couple of weeks ago when they released an upgrade to the market, which was a little bit underwhelming um, from one sense, but not so bad on the other hand. So like many companies at the moment, Ordinate is suffering from supply shortages when it comes to their microchips. There's a big supply shortage going on globally at the moment across a lot of products, but microchips is one of those areas which is struggling at the moment. So they've got an enormous order backlog. Um, their revenue growth numbers were very good in their annual report. They've recovered really nicely from, from COVID. Um, but the problem is they're just struggling to meet that immense demand that's out there at the moment. So it's taken the gloss off what has been a very good turnaround story in recent times. Mm -hmm. Effectively, um, what they provide is um, audio or access to digital audio software for 
large companies. So basically they have a, a protocol which is embedded in all different electronic items. Um, often these are used at outdoor concerts or outdoor sporting events. Um, but if you think about Bose or you think about um, Toshiba or Sony, these companies are all incorporating this microchip or this software from Ordinate called Dante, which enables these different pieces of equipment to communicate without the need for cords, etc. Mm. So good quality company really established their dominance in the audio space. Um, they're now moving into the video space as well, looking to replicate some of the stuff they've been able to do in the digital audio space. Um, but this is a company that we think has a very good long-term trajectory. 17 times the adoption, or sorry, 17 times the rate of adoption to their nearest competitor. 80% um, of new electronic products coming to market incorporate this product. So you can see how there's some pretty good economics off the back of that if they're able to meet the demand. And, yeah. and we do think that the supply shortages will be transitory and they will overcome that and demand is there waiting on the other end. I, I know um, cars are having the same microchip problems. You know, one of the biggest... Uh, uh, sellers of cars in the world that has um, Jeeps and um, um, Fiat's and things like that, those brands, they're about um, 600,000 cars short because of microchip issues. But they figure by the middle of next year, those problems will have gone away. I guess the same thing will apply to Ordinate. So it may well be a stock that does well in the, you know, sometime in 2022, once that microchip issue is solved. Yeah, that's, we would agree with that. I mean, this is a company that was pushing $10.50, $11. It's now back around the mid $8 mark. So we would see this pullback as an opportunity for those that don't hold it to take um, advantage of that pullback. They are trying to work to create a workaround for that chip shortage in the short term. Um, so that is something which will be interesting to watch to see if they can overcome some of that issue in the short term. But because of that supply shortage and their inability to meet demand, in the, in the immediate term, they have had to par back their revenue growth forecast from about 30% to 10%. But again, we don't see it as a long-term issue. And sometimes the market has a tendency to treat short-term issues as permanent. Um, but in this case, we don't think that's necessarily um, that the, the case in this okay. point. This, this is one I, I didn't sort of flag to you, but I, I think in the past you have liked this company, uh, but it has had problems with the Central Bank of Ireland, EML. Uh, yeah. have, you, have you taken a view on the EML? Uh, my, my view is that I think eventually they'll sort out the differences of Bank of Ireland and, and the, the quality of the business might shine through, but it's, it's guesswork at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, it's never one we actually invested in, but I remember we spoke about it a few times because it was a darling stock there for a while. Mm. It was taking off. Um, essentially, they've got um, gift cards or reloadable credit cards, which can be used in gaming and whatnot. And then obviously they've got a payments facilitation platform used by businesses. And most of those businesses have been doing well now for a number of years. But as you flag, they did this large scale acquisition in Ireland. Um, and as it turns out, some of those gift card type purchases are being used by anti-money laundering type people, nefarious operations. So that has created a few headaches for them in the short term, but it will ultimately come down to the negotiations with the Irish government uh, and what the repercussions of those negotiations are, whether the gift cards are limited to a certain dollar value. Um, it, it, look, all that sort of stuff is being discussed, but at the moment, it's a little bit pie in the sky. It's, it's unfortunate because they were doing so well with their Australian business, went and did this large scale acquisition, and then all of a sudden this has come out um, of left field, probably at the worst time for them 
particularly when you're meant to be focusing on betting down that recent acquisition. Yeah. Now, before we go, is there a, a, a new one, like one that I might ask you about in a year's time that, that's come under your radar screen that you like going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think I might have flagged this last time. Um, there's a company called XRF. Um, essentially, it's involved in a mining services type operation, but more on the, the technological side of things. Um, effectively, when a mining company goes out and it does its exploration and it's drilling, it takes out core samples from the the earth and then it tests those core samples to determine whether the quality of that core is high quality or not. So XRF provide the machines as well as the chemicals used to test these core samples. Um, what we like about it is, look, they're, they're selling a lot of new machines at the moment because obviously the mining industry is doing quite well, a lot of exploration going on. But once they sell the machines, then these companies then need to buy the chemicals which become consumables because once the chemicals are used once, they can't be reused again. And you start to get a higher margin product coming off the back of your, um, your, your, your widget sale. So that's a, an interesting business. It doesn't trade on two lofty multiples. I think it's probably about 20, 25 times earnings. Um, it pays a four or 5% dividend yield, or probably a bit yeah. lower now because it has done quite well. So although it is a, a smaller company, um, it's been around for a while. Its metrics look very good. Its balance sheet looks very good. And it is a dividend paying, uh, emerging smaller cap company, which we quite like as well. Um, and I'll give you another one, um, a company called Alcidian in the healthcare space. It's a, it's a healthcare tech type company. So effectively, if you think about hospitals, they can be pretty archaic, particularly in the public system. Uh, the old clipboard at the end of the bed, the doctor or the nurse comes in and ticks off what medication John's had, how's his heart rate going and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Effectively, they're looking to digitize that, move it all online. It helps with not only bed rotation, but the rotation of staff, uh, meals, uh, medications, all that sort of stuff becomes automated and digitized. So rather than having the inefficiencies um, of those clipboards, it becomes a bit more modern and comes into the 21st century. That's a company they've been winning a lot of contracts lately around the world. And um, they've got a big contract with the Australian Defence Hospital System um, as well, which is in the pipeline. If they can get that over the line, that should give it a good shot in the arm as well. But so our city and ALC is that one. Okay. And the other one was? XRF. The code XRF Scientific is the full name. The code is XRF. Great stuff. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Have a good day. Same to you. Michael Lane from Medallion Financial. Well, I'm catching up with Marcus Bogdan of Blackmore Capital, and he manages the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund. And we'll see what's going on in the fund, what's going on with the major holdings in that fund. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Peter. Mate, let's go through, because uh, you know, a lot of companies are doing show and tells right now, AGMs, and it gives you a chance to have a real good look at the companies mm -hmm. you're invested in. And let's just get, talk about a couple of companies. Let's kick off with Amcor. Sure. So they um, announced their first quarter result uh, late, earlier this week mm. uh, and they confirmed their guidance, which they gave at the full year result of earnings per share growth, earnings growth of between 7 and 11 percent for the financial year for 2022. Uh, it, so it was pleasing that they reaffirmed guidance mm. uh, because they're one of those companies that operate in the United States and uh, seeing the full force of what we're seeing in supply chain, 
disruptions. Mm. There's a range of shortages in raw materials for resin and aluminium, but they've been able to navigate their way through that. They've been able to grow margin uh, and deliver uh, a very strong result in the first quarter. Yeah. Now, obviously, the the stocks you have in your portfolio, if you didn't change them, there would be times when you would buy more of one and less of others. So proportionately, you get a higher exposure to certain yes. companies. Is an Amcor a company you'll get more exposure to, or you're happy with this current your current holding? Um, I'm quite attracted to the valuation. It's on a price earnings ratio of around 15 times, and for the income um, portfolio, it provides a four percent dividend yield, which we believe will grow over time. And so it is one that we're very comfortable to have in the portfolio. But if we were to see some weakness in the share price, uh, it would be then a contender where we could top that up. Okay, let's uh, remain in America. CSL is one of your companies as well. Yes, it is. And so they are starting to see the first green shoots of a recovery in uh, pla plasma supply. Mm. Remembering it was deeply affected by what happened in COVID because uh, donors were are unable to go to the centres uh, and so they weren't able to, to receive the plasma. But sequentially over the last three months, we've seen an uptick there. And so whilst this year will be a pause in terms of the earnings growth, uh, the expectation and looking forward into 2023, uh, is a significant step up in earnings and in dividends. Okay, let's come home now. And this is a company that clearly has done fantastically well because of the coronavirus, people working from home, buying stuff online for the first time or buying a lot more than ever before. And that's Goodman Group. Mm -hmm. um, how is that place? And is it going to be a, a company that doesn't do well once we hopefully get back to normal? Well, I think some of the, the patterns that we're, we're seeing on, online are, are starting to be reasonably settled and we get a, a view into that when we look into the Northern Hemisphere where they're mm. sort of first in and, and first out. Um, but they've just upgraded their guidance quite significantly. Mm. At the full year result, they're expecting around 10% growth for this year. Uh, and three months into this year, they've upgraded that to greater than 15%. So there is an extraordinary tailwind in this business and we do think that their portfolio and their approach to management lends us to double-digit growth for the foreseeable future. Because they're not just the supplier of, of online delivery um, products, Mm -hmm. They're more diversified than that, aren't they? And they're diversified across geography mm. as, as well. And so one of the other areas they're seeing uh, great demand for is data storage, those industrial warehouses that hold the data, mm. as well as benefiting from uh, this move to, to online fulfilment. And they're just strategically placed in each mm. of their markets. All right, what about a company like CleanAway? Well, Clean, CleanAway, has just had their AGM uh, and it was pleasing that, uh, that they indicated, again, they were starting to see green shoots, particularly in their largest market, New South Wales, where there is a pickup in industrial activity, a pickup in SME activity, uh, and the, the deposit, uh, deposit container scheme, which they're also benefiting from. 
TPG have taken a 5% interest in the, in the company that was announced this, this week. Uh, but we believe that it's a vertically integrated waste management company. Uh, the thesis there remains incredibly attractive. And let's go to Westpac. It's been a troubled banker. I've always thought it looked like pretty good value, but the last report we got uh, only this week was not as good as I would have liked to see. But is it still, does it still remain a good value stock to buy? It was a disappointing result in two aspects. Mm. Uh, the margin and the expense. Mm. So, but you are right. Fundamentally, it looks cheap comparative to the other banks. Mm. It provides a fully frank dividend yield of 5%. It's still got an unquestionably strong balance sheet and capital position, which is incredibly important. And what they do need to do now is to demonstrate greater discipline on lending, on lending growth, which they've indicated that they would, uh, and also uh, an ability to reduce uh, the expense line over, over time. They've got a plan to do that. Now it's all about the execution. But prim prima facie, uh, the fundamentals uh, compared to the other banks, mm. it, it, looks, it looks reasonably fair Are you going to increase value. your exposure to Westpac over time? Uh, we will observe <laughs> over time because we do need to see a level of execution. We need to see that discipline on yeah. the home lending yeah. and we need to be able to see the, um, uh, the, exp the expense level there as well. Mm. In the interim, we'll enjoy getting that uh, fully free. Always dividend. the cautious accountant there, Marcus. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed. You need to be through the cycles. Yeah, okay. Well, one last thing. We're, we've seen you know, the, the unit price um, get up to about 270, maybe a little bit higher. When the market goes off the ball, it comes off a little bit. Are you waiting for this next leg up? Because it seems to me the fund does react to the overall performance of the overall market. And usually November to April can be really good for stocks. Are you expecting to see a, a higher unit price over the next, say, three to five months? Well, you're absolutely right. Seasonality, we are coming into a stronger period. But I think more importantly, it comes back to how the corporates are trading. And I think from an Australian perspective, we are coming out of lockdown now. We've seen through various examples in AGMs and, and the first quarter updates that there are green shoots. And so this is particularly encouraging for earnings growth and ultimately <coughs> dividend growth going forward. And we also know that Australian corporates are in very good financial position in terms of their strengths of their balance sheets as okay. well. Okay, I'm going to put you under pressure as I always do. At the end of this calendar year, what do you reckon the, the dividend's going to be approximately? So I think it will it will sit around that 4%, mm. uh, and then you've got the benefit of fully franking there. Mm. And it is always uh, important to remember that Australia has the second highest dividend yield across uh, the developed, developed world. Okay. So from an income perspective, the Australian market still looks and particularly And now you need to be conservative when you say four, it could be five, but you're saying four, yes. plus about two for franking. So yep. low retirees might end up with 6%. Yes, mm. yes. And Maybe I, a bit higher. Yep. But I think the direction is still positive in terms of the expectation of dividend growth yeah. um, over the next six to 12 months. Because dividends have been retarded by the, the coronavirus, the lockdowns, the lack of profitability that has come out of it. And you're expecting 2022 to be much better for profitability for lots of companies. And that should help dividends. 
Uh, yes, ab absolutely. And I think the confidence to, to, to reinvest and to pay dividends now as we're coming out of sort of this unified lockdown. Okay, good luck with that, mate. Terrific. I'm invested in Switzer Dividend Growth Fund. I want you to do well. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. Cheers. Marcus Bogdan of the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund and Blackmore Capital. Now, what surprised me and what I wanted to get you on the program for is that you've made a really big call and you do big calls in the past and historically I've supported you and thought you were absolutely right. But this one, you came out, out of the box and you said, well, house prices will fall by 20%. And I thought, well, that's a big call. And I figured that it needed to be explained because a headline is one thing, the, the true story is another. And after delving into some of your, your writing as a consequence of this, I know you're not telling people house prices are going to fall 20% next year. So why don't you tell us exactly what you're thinking? Yeah, mate, it's pretty simple. Uh, I made the point that if and when the RBA raises rates, if we get uh, 100 basis points of hikes, uh, our modelling suggests that after that occurs, prices will probably fall 15 to 25%. But between now and then, we think uh, <clears throat> prices will continue to rise. So probably by another 5 to 10%. Uh, we've already had 20% growth since September last year. And we've had 30% growth since the end of the last downturn in mid-2019. Right. So let, I think most people will be wondering then, what's your timeline for interest rate rises? So because you, you've nominated 100 basis points, that's basically four interest rate rises for the, the, the Reserve Bank. Not a lot historically, but we are living in unusual historical times, aren't we? Yeah. So I think the RBA will look at lifting rates probably in late 2022 through to sometime in uh, 23. So that's when they'll start. So that's uh, you know, <clears throat> at least a year away. Uh, and currently the RBA is incredibly resistant to the idea of hiking next year. Uh, I think they'll go slowly. So I would expect about one hike <clears throat> every quarter. So we might get a hundred bips by the end of 23 slash early uh, 24, depending on the pace at which they hike. And I should say that uh, if they go very slowly, it's possible that prices don't quickly correct 15 to 25%. So <clears throat> if we had a, an adjustment in house prices that was much more slow, uh, incomes would continue growing over that time. And that would change our forecast for prices. So that would reduce our expected uh, losses. But I'd stress that house prices nationally are up 72% <clears throat> since the start of um, the big boom in uh, 2012. So really the big boom began in 2013 but the end of uh, the preceding correction was 2011. So 
prices started climbing in <clears throat> January 2012. And so we've had a, an asset class that over the last 10 years has given us capital gains of six to 7% per annum. <clears throat> and these drawdowns are quite normal. So prices fell 10% between 2017 and 2019. We, uh, we were, <clears throat> if I can say so, mate, the first to forecast pretty much every leg of the cycle since the start of 2008. And this volatility is characteristic of all asset classes, particularly uh, levered asset classes. And I'm not at all worried about a, a 15 to 25% correction. Mm. And, and Chris, we, we should also explain, these are average numbers, aren't they? So some suburbs could fall by more and some suburbs or towns can rise, uh, rise by less. Yeah, this is a crucial point, Peter, and it often head fakes people. People will say to me, oh, but, you know, in 2008, you know, Eastern Sydney property fell 20, 30%. It might have, but across the country, prices only corrected about 6% in 2008. So, yes, I'm talking about averages, and um, <clears throat> it does mean that in some areas, You'll see bigger falls of you know, 25 to possibly you know, 40, 50%. But equally, in other areas, uh, you won't see falls that are as steep as the, uh, the average. I should also stress that people think or economists believe that to get the cash rate back to normal, the RBA needs to go to 2 3 or 4%. I think the RBA will stop after about one to one and a half percent of um, <clears throat> increases. And so, again, I don't think we have much to fear. We're probably going to get price increases of another five to 10 percent before the RBA starts. <clears throat> that would mean that um, since June 19, we've had capital gains of 35 to 40 percent. So let, let's try and work out why the Reserve Bank kept telling people they wouldn't raise interest rates until 2024. And it wasn't a promise, but gee, it was pretty well a committed undertaking. Did they, did they misread how quickly the economy is going to rebound? Because it hasn't rebounded yet, has it? But 2022, on my reckoning, you might have seen Bill Evans Get put a 7% number on 2022. Um, if Bill's right, interest rates will rise, will rise even quicker than what you're probably even suggesting. Yeah, so <clears throat> the RBA was far too pessimistic about the downturn. And it has probably also underestimated the strength of the rebound. Um, and the RBA still believes, for the record, it won't hike currently until 2024. Mm. They've dropped the promise. I mean, they say it wasn't a promise, but they certainly told everyone <clears throat> that they wouldn't hike before 24. Um, <clears throat> I'm very bullish on the economy, super bullish over the next year. And the inflation data has been a little more frisky than the RBA expected. So core inflation 
is at 2.1%. And that's in the <coughs> target band for the RBA. The RBA's target band is two to three. It thought core inflation would be closer to uh, one and three quarter percent. So that's been a, a little bit of a surprise. And I do think the economy will continue to surprise on the upside. <clears throat> and that's why we could see the RBA hiking in the back end of next year. Joining us now is Paul Mirren, the co-founder of M Squared Capital. He's talked, he talks to us about what's going on in the market right now. Paul, good to see you. Thank you, Peter. Now, but before we start talking about a piece you wrote for your newsletter around things like the importance of immigration for ultimately uh, economic growth and even house prices and the, the stability and security of the, of the housing sector, let's just talk about Chris Joy's uh, suggestion that you know, if the Reserve Bank increases interest rates, um, we could start seeing house prices fall by 20%. What do you think? Well, it is definitely very possible. Um, I think it's um, the analogy is gravity. So interest rates have gone down. Um, Peter Tulips, which is uh, um, the Reserve Bank's own uh, economist, doing a very detailed analysis in relation to how property prices work. Uh, interest rates is the number one factor of determining where the pro property prices are. So when property prices went up, it was as a result of interest rates going down. We've had that uh, 20 to 30% increase. If interest rates go up by 1%, it's natural that it will go uh, down. But it all comes down to even more simple uh, analysis than that. It comes down to affordability. It comes down to simple cash flow. What are people making? What are the taxes? And what are they left after taxes? And how much they can afford to pay for the mortgage uh, mortgages? So. If the mortgages go up, they can afford less. Uh, it's a very simple analogy. Yeah, well, one of the things I, I talk to them about, because a lot of people get terrified when they see house prices falling by 20% and they forget how much they've risen by. And they also forget that that 20% is an average. Some could fall by more, some could fall by less. And I know you always do your equations based on, well, we're lending to someone who's put their house up as collateral. Yes. And you kind of allow for even a potentially 35% fall in the value of that property before you'd start getting a bit worried about the ability of someone to pay you back. Precisely. Um, well, normally we only lend 65% against uh, any particular asset. So we're in the worst possible correction that we've had in the last 20, 30 years, it was actually nothing to do with interest rates. It was more to do when the last time the macroprudential authority came in in 2017, and wanted to slow down the amount of debt that people were borrowing. It just made it harder for people to borrow money. And we've actually only saw a 10% decrease. So um, it doesn't scare us in relation to where property prices will go. We do think that we're probably at the peak of the, of the market at the moment, but if the Reserve Bank does increase interest rates, I don't think they're gonna increase it by 1% all of a sudden overnight. No. It will be done over two, three years. People will have a lot of time to anticipate it, by then, we will probably have uh, tax cuts to cushion it. Uh, we'll have um, wage growth as well. So that's the reason why interest rates will go up is because of inflation. So really, um, 
by the time we get to it, I don't think it's going to be as dramatic as what people are saying today. Yeah. And this is the importance of, I thought, of your newsletter is that you, you emphasised the, the, the likelihood of two things, that immigration will probably increase and that will spur economic growth. Why don't you just quickly explain to viewers the relationship between immigration and economic growth here in Australia? Well, it, um, look, when I, when I started writing this particular article, if you look at the context in relation to Australia, Australia is um, historically the second, um, uh, uh, sort of the second um, largest performer in relation to net migration in the world. So Canada is first. I think uh, right before COVID, the 1.8% of the population were new migrants. Australia is 1.6. Um, and it drives, people don't realize in relation to how much it drives economic growth. So for example, if you're increasing your population base by 1%, roughly it's about two percent of your gdp uh, because you're building you know you need to build construction they're going into the work uh, workplace uh, you, there is just a large economy to that is sustained when you have migration um so with property prices um they don't necessarily go up okay with property prices it's all about the demand supply so what you're doing is is that if you're actually incre increasing the demand what you need to be making from a planning perspective, you need to be approving and delivering sufficient amount of supply. Mm. Um, if you deliver enough supply, it doesn't actually increase prices. All you're doing is you're creating the multiplier effect in relation to the economy. So approximately every dollar that's placed into construction, $3 is going into the wider community, wider economy. Yeah. All right. So, and we've, we've seen um, state premiers um, put their hand up to really pump up immigration. And I suspect that's going to be um, an important ingredient in the growth process over the next year or two. Um, you also have a fairly good understanding of the supply of properties in Australia. And that's one of the big problems causing the price rise, isn't it? That we are really bad at supplying properties. Absolutely. So Peter Tulip, who's actually done another paper for the Reserve Bank and He's actually attributed that, for example, in houses in, the, in, in Sydney, there's about 70% additional cost on per medium house prices because there's not enough land released. Um, and, and conversely for apartments as well. So what, that, what his paper has actually determined is that a, a large chunk in relation to the value of property is because there's sufficient supply of it. Hmm. Um, so in Melbourne, they have a slightly more efficient process. They've got more land, they've got more apartments. The price differential is less. And in Queensland, even, even, even lower. So when you actually look at how, on average, how much people are earning versus the value of the property, um, property is a lot more affordable in Queensland. There's a lot more of it. And they have a better planning process that are able to release more land and more apartments more efficiently. Um, if developers are watching this show right now, they probably nodding their head and saying, yeah, it's taken me four years or five years to get this damn approval from council. It is because of that slow process, it actually artificially keeps up prices high. Yeah. Well, one last thing, and this is something that you didn't cover in your newsletter, I'm sure you're aware of it. Once again, we're starting to see that trek from south to north, you know, that, that, that triangle around Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, to Brisbane, I guess, across to Ipswich and places like that. Lots of population going into that area. Is that 
is that an area that you guys are comfortable to to lend against or are there some areas there that are too volatile for you guys look uh, traditionally regional areas is, is areas that we don't lend to for a number of different reasons and i think i've come to your show before um in a, in a COVID environment they've been very popular performed really really well but long term people want to be close to where there is good schools infrastructure and jobs hmm. um so that's why metro areas are very good given that gold coast is doing very well and there's a huge demographic um, internal migration from both Sydney and from Melbourne that are moving into that area. Um, and that creating a micro economy there, which is will be sustained. But yeah, there are areas in the regional areas that we love to visit, but from a from a lending perspective, we see a little bit of risk in relation to volatility um, and liquidity. So it's just because the price doesn't drop um, um, sufficiently enough is is a, a risk element in itself but if i have to recover an asset i need to make sure that i can sell it quickly hmm. um, there's no point of having an asset that's, that hasn't fallen in value but there's no bidders on the market for me to wait until someone buys it so that is a very important element for us the quality of asset is really critical is because we want to have in metro areas where we know that the volatility is not very not very high and that we can actually dispose of it quickly if we need to Okay, one for the, the road and one for the record. When do you think the Reserve Bank will start raising the cash rate? Uh, look, if um, it all comes down to inflation. So if, you know, if there's two camps to inflation story, there's one camp of the inflation story that believes that inflation will be a, a transitionary or temporary because of the lockdowns that we've experienced. And there's another camp saying that it's a permanent item. Um, look, look I, I think that interest rates will start creeping up probably next year probably later half of next year by maybe a quarter. And I think there'll be a big space between each rate increase just for us to see whether it is truly a transitionary or is a permanent in our environment. But um, yeah, look, you know, we were always looking at risks and we're always making sure that we look after our investors to make sure we assess the risk and the type of deals that we do. So that's why all of these elements are so important to us. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. And that's Paul Mirren of M Square Capital. Thanks for joining us. If you want to know more about the stocks we talked about tonight, other stocks out there that my experts at the Switzer Report think look pretty good for the future, go to switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining me. See you on Monday night.